Hi everyone, and welcome back to Endopod. For those of you who are new here, my name is Lois Mitchell, and I'm a third year medical student. In today's episode, we're continuing on from last week with our Endogyne series. So go check out last week's episode on the physiology of pregnancy by Nina, if you've not done so already. Today, we're going to discuss the endocrinology of gestational diabetes. We'll discuss the basic physiology of the pancreas, as well as the pathophysiology and management of this condition. To start us off, gestational diabetes is a disorder of high blood sugar that develops during pregnancy because of an inability to produce enough insulin. This is the hormone that lowers your blood sugar. And it is not linked to any pre-existing type 1 or 2 diabetes. Normally, the high blood sugar of this condition disappears after birth. And this condition can happen at any point of the pregnancy, but is most common in the second and third trimesters of pregnancy. Just like other types of diabetes, gestational diabetes affects how your cells use sugar for energy and the high blood sugar of gestational diabetes can negatively impact both pregnant women and the health of the baby. To start us off, let's have a quick look at the basic physiology of the pancreas. The pancreas is a dual function gland that has both endocrine and exocrine functions. Endocrine functions means that it produces hormones that are released into the bloodstream whilst endocrine means that its products are released through ducts and into the digestive tract. But for today's episode, I'll be focusing on the endocrine functions of the pancreas. The main endocrine role of the pancreas is to control the blood sugar levels in the body. It does this by producing the hormones glucagon and insulin from the alpha and beta cells of the islets of Langerhans, the functional part of the pancreas. Let's now dive in and have a closer look at how these hormones control blood sugar in regards to gestational diabetes. Let's have a quick look at insulin first. Insulin is known as a peptide hormone and it's produced by the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans of the pancreas. It can generally be perceived to be the anabolic pancreatic hormone and this just means that it takes multiple smaller molecules and combines them to make a single larger product. Insulin interacts with many different hormones throughout the body but For today's episode on gestational diabetes, we only need to know the main function of insulin is to lower blood sugar levels by increase the amount of stored sugar in the body, or increase the amount of glycogen that's made, that's the fancy name for it. Whilst insulin also lowers the rate of glycogen being broken down and also lowers the rate that new sugar molecules are made in the liver. However, insulin also stimulates the beta cells of the pancreas to produce more insulin and this increases the effects of insulin even more. And this also prevents the alpha cells from producing the other peptide hormone glucagon, which we'll move on to next. Let's move on to the other hormone now, glucagon. Glucagon is yet again another pancreatic peptide hormone, but this time it's produced from the alpha cells of the islets of Langerhans and not the beta cells. Beta cells produce insulin. The main role of glucagon is to increase blood sugar levels in the body by increasing the rate that glycogen, or energy stores, are broken down and also increases the production of sugar molecules in the liver. All at the same time is lowering the rate that new energy stores, or glycogen, are made. Therefore, you should consider glucagon to be the catabolic pancreatic hormone, and this just means that glucagon breaks down larger molecules. A further action of glucagon is stimulation of alpha cells and this leads to further glucagon release. So in summary, a nice and easy way to remember the main role of glucagon is that when glucose or sugar is gone, glucagon is made to increase blood sugar levels. 
Let's now have a look at who's affected by gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is a very common condition that affects at least four to five women per 100 pregnancies. There's no way to prevent it, but some women are at higher risk of developing it due to the risk factors for developing gestational diabetes. Now talk about these risk factors. If you or the patient is overweight or obese with a BMI greater than 30, if they're not physically active, if a past medical history or have any conditions with insulin resistance, such as previous gestational diabetes, pre-diabetes, or PCOS. And go check out our episode on PCOS if you've not done that already. If the patient has a family history of diabetes, if had a previous delivery of a baby weighing more than four and a half kilos, if the mother is older when the child is born, or if they have any conditions affecting their sleep, and there's also a risk factor if the child has a low or high birth weight, as these are linked to insulin resistance. Low birth weight is often the result of the baby not getting enough nutrients in the womb, either as a result of maternal undernutrition or problem with the placenta. And finally, women who are Hispanic, Native American, Asian or Afro-Caribbean in origin also have a higher risk of developing gestational diabetes. Therefore, keeping your BMI under 30 whilst also leading an active lifestyle can help reduce your risk of developing gestational diabetes. look at the pathophysiology of gestational diabetes. As we already know, gestational diabetes is a serious pregnancy complication where pregnant women experience long-term high blood sugar and is most often a problem with their inability to process sugar. This can be due to problems with their pancreatic beta cells on top of the chronic insulin resistance of pregnancy. If you want to learn more about the, the changes that occur during pregnancy, make sure to check out Nina's episode from last time. Therefore, problems with your Pancreatic beta cells and insulin resistance at the tissues throughout the body are key components in the pathophysiology of gestational diabetes. This insulin resistance occurs when the cells stop responding properly to insulin, and at the molecular level, one major change is due to a failure of insulin signaling. This can cause a decrease in the amount of glucose transporter 4 or GLUT4 being made. This is the primary transporter that is responsible for bringing glucose into the cell to use as energy. Furthermore, the rate of sugar uptake due to insulin is reduced by 54% in gestational diabetes when compared to normal pregnancy. There are many other molecular changes that occur in pregnancy in regards to insulin resistance, and many of these molecular changes can persist after delivery. Neurohormonal dysfunction has also been linked to gestational diabetes. The neurohormonal network controls appetite, how energy is used, and your metabolism. Is made of a complex network of signals that control the rate that fat tissue is made and how glucose or sugar is used in the body. This is closely linked to the sleep-wake cycle, which reinforces the link between problems with your sleep and gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is also associated with an increase in sugar production by the liver. And unlike in type 2 diabetes, gestational diabetes is not associated with insulin resistance and skeletal muscle. This is the kind of muscle that you can control voluntarily. It's important to know this as medications that decrease blood sugar by lowering skeletal muscle insulin resistance and cause harm to both the patient and the fetus if this medication does not reduce plasma glucose concentration. Placenta contributes to insulin resistance during pregnancy through secreting the hormones and proteins known as cytokines. As the barrier between maternal and fetal bloodstreams, the placenta itself is also exposed to the high blood sugar of gestational diabetes. 
This can impact transport of sugar, amino acids and lipids or fats across the placenta from the mother to the fetus. Now that we know how gestational diabetes comes about, let's now go over how a patient with gestational diabetes can might present. Oftentimes, they will not show any symptoms, and this is only picked up when testing a urine sample at an antenatal or pre-birth doctor's appointment, or after an oral glucose tolerance test. This is a test to see if the body can process sugar normally. And this is done if the patient has any risk factors of gestational diabetes. We'll talk a bit more about these tests in the next section. However, some women can develop symptoms of high blood sugar, such as being thirstier than normal, needing to go to the bathroom more often, having a dry mouth, or tiredness. It is also important to know that some of these symptoms are normal symptoms of pregnancy and don't necessarily mean that they have gestational diabetes, but it is also important to reassure them to contact a midwife or doctor if they're worried about any of these symptoms. You need to keep in mind that having gestational diabetes makes a woman more likely to develop type 2 diabetes later on in life. Let's now have a quick look at the effects that gestational diabetes can have on the baby during pregnancy. Many women with gestational diabetes have a normal pregnancy and are able to give birth to healthy babies despite having this condition. But it's also important to know that gestational diabetes can cause problems during pregnancy, such as the baby growing too large in the womb, and this can cause problems with delivery and increases the chances that labour will have to be induced or the woman might need to have a C-section. There can also be polyhydramnios, which means that there's too much amniotic fluid. This is the fluid that surrounds the baby. This can cause premature labour or problems at delivery. The baby can be born prematurely, before 37 weeks of pregnancy. The mother can develop preeclampsia, and this is a condition that causes high blood pressure and protein in the urine during pregnancy and can lead to pregnancy complications if it's not treated. The baby can have a low blood sugar or yelling of the skin and eyes, known as jaundice, after they're born, and this can require treatment in hospital after the child was born. And unfortunately, in very rare cases, the baby can be stillborn. And this means that the child is not alive at birth after 24 weeks of pregnancy. Now we'll move on and have a quick look at how gestational diabetes is actually diagnosed. At the first appointment with the doctor midwife during pregnancy, between weeks 8 and 12, they will check to see if the woman is at an increased risk for developing gestational diabetes. This means they're going to see if the patient has at least one risk factor. And if they do, they're offered an oral glucose tolerance test between weeks 24 and 28 of the pregnancy. But if the patient has had gestational diabetes in the past, they're offered an oral glucose tolerance test earlier in the pregnancy, another one at 24 to 28 weeks if the first one is normal. If this oral glucose tolerance test shows any signs of the body not processing sugar or glucose normally, then a diagnosis of gestational diabetes is made. Now, let's move on and talk about how gestational diabetes is actually treated. If the high blood sugar levels of gestational diabetes are controlled, the chances of problems during the pregnancy go down. Normally, patients are given a blood sugar testing kit so they can monitor the blood sugar at home and see if treatment's going. The first line treatment for gestational diabetes is advice on changes to diet and increasing exercise. But if these alone do not work and blood sugar targets are not met within two weeks, the patient will need medications to help control the blood sugar. These medications include metformin or insulin injections. If metformin isn't effective by itself or if the patient cannot get 
metformin for whatever reason. It's also important to note that if a woman has a blood glucose before eating that is greater than 7 millimoles per litre at diagnosis, then she should be offered insulin treatment immediately, alongside a change in diet and exercise. But if a woman has her blood sugar between 6 and 6.9 millimoles per litre on an empty stomach, and she has a problem with her pregnancy, for example, her womb has too much amniotic fluid, then they should be started on immediate insulin treatment with or without metformin. Women who have gestational diabetes should stop all their gestational diabetes medications immediately after birth, have a blood test 6 to 13 weeks postpartum or after birth, and if this is normal, they have a blood test annually from their own to make sure that they don't develop diabetes. So, in conclusion, gestational diabetes is a common condition that occurs during pregnancy does not always present with any symptoms, and is usually only picked up with an oral glucose tolerance test if there are any risk factors in antenatal appointment. It is normally due to a problem with the beta cell function in the islets of Langerhans of the pancreas, and also due to an increased insulin resistance during pregnancy. Gestational diabetes is normally treated with lifestyle changes as well as insulin injections and metformin. Women with gestational diabetes should have a blood test after birth to make sure that their blood sugar levels return to normal, as gestational diabetes places women at higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later on in life. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow our social media platforms and tune in next time for our episode in our endogyne series on endometriosis. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us at Aberdeen University Endocrinology Society on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please make sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. We thank you for the support and if you have any requests for future podcasts, please let us know. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow our social media platforms and tune in next time for our episode in our endogyne series on endometriosis. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us at Aberdeen University Endocrinology Society on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please make sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. We thank you for the support and if you have any requests for future podcasts, please let us know.